The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across me is the one, the only, the beast from the not-so-far east, Tammy the Gurr Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. No, every time you say that now, I'm going to think of yesterday when Kitty kept saying, use your words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Well, it was hard because you, know, you had made your dental surgery I, done. I did. I did. And I couldn't. I was like. I be like. <laughs> I like that you flipped me off over my comment. I'm going to be honest. because So she sends me this picture. She goes, my mouth is all swollen. And I said, dude, if you've been going to the gym, you look swole, dude. <laughs> she sends me a back of thing where she's flipping me off. I'm like, I had that coming. I had that coming. You kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So today we got Keith Jesperson calling in. We're doing murders. Uh. A little bit on the three, yeah, because we got uh, we got some info on the third one, right, and more coming on that, and then four and five, good times, good times, good times. All right, you ready to get into it? I am. All right, here we go. Hey, you good morning, Keith. Now, oh, here we go. Yeah, wait until it tells you to speak, Scott. <laughs> Hello. Good, good morning, Keith. Good morning. How are you guys doing this fine, fine morning? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good. How about yourself, man? It's all right. Everything's good. I was uh, able to call a friend of mine in New York that I hadn't been able to talk to in a couple months. His phone finally worked. So, oh, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. All right. So you wanted yeah. to you wanted to continue with victims three and four, right? But well, what? three, four, and five actually. Right. Uh, as, as you may know, that uh, uh, they're looking. They, they got the dog team. They're going to go out there and they're going to look at for my third victim tomorrow. Correct, correct. And actually, I have a question about yeah. that. When you spoke to your third victim, did she speak with, like, any kind of an accent or, like, what what was her verbiage like? We were asked that, actually. I don't, you know, her, my third victim? Right. Right. Did she have any what, what ethnic What she sounded act? like? Yeah, did she sound like she was Hispanic or ethnic or did she sound like? No, she act like some horny girl looking for money. Oh, okay, so no accent, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, she stood on my running board and looked at me, and I was looked back at her, and I was—I wanted to get in, get her in my truck, and that's what we were trying to do. And she didn't want to get in the truck unless I was parked somewhere there. Gotcha, a, gotcha. It was a crazy thing, right? So she was she was caught up with the idea of, of conducting business at the rest area and not going any further anywhere else with me. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that tracks but, now. So one of the things that is really driving this case right now is, okay, I talked to Breyer uh, this morning, actually, and she said that uh, her investigator went to Merced County, and they're looking at the evidence that supposedly has me for the Cynthia Lynn Rose case. Well, she said, well, he said, well, uh, she had a red top on. And I said, well, all the girls working the area had a red top on. So there wasn't, you know, there real no real evidence. Uh, uh, tying me to the Cincinnati Rose case, and that's why we're looking for my real case, which is in the dirt parking lot that was once the parking lot of the Blueberry Hill Cafe in Livingston. Right. And that's what we're doing. And that's what they're doing tomorrow. Now, I'll call her again on Tuesday 
uh, yay or nay whether they found anything or not. I mean, that's just where it comes down to. It's been 31 years. Right. Exactly. So. Yeah, that's been a long time, but I hear that they can find it after I don't know how many years. So. You see, that's what I was wondering about, because I would think after 31 years that any scent would be gone, but I, I don't know anything about cadaver dogs or Well, the, the, like the dog teams, is from what I understand, the dog teams can find, uh, you know, they can smell it out, you know, 50, 60 years later or longer. Oh, wow. Uh, if, yeah. they, if there is a body there in the ground, they, 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 they walk over and they sit right on it. They, and, and that's just, just how it is, and I don't know how the dogs do it. But they have a, a keener sense than we do, and that's the only thing that you know. Briar is going to push this all the way. She's going to that they know that there's something wrong with the case. That's why she's pushing it. Is they they don't they don't have the right person. You know, when I was talking to them in 1996, I told them what happened, and they said one of the detectives. It doesn't even sound like the case we're working on. So they weren't even aware. So by when they bring and when they find this other body, and they will, I really believe they will. The dog will sit right on it, and they'll dig up, and they'll go down, and they'll find out, and they'll have remains, and and then of course now they have two bodies in the in the area. My only hope is that they don't find any more. <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty soon you go. You know, to like... I didn't put any more. I, I didn't put any more in the parking lot. Let's just say. But who's to say now if there's two there and. There could be three or four. Who knows? I mean, I don't know how right. many other drivers put bodies there. I mean, I know what I put there. Pretty soon they're but, like, you got 35 victims. You're like, no. Oh, my God. Though. Wouldn't that be horrible? <laughs> that'd, yeah. that'd be they'd be like, they'd be like, this maybe, is a dumping site. This maybe is, he was is, telling the truth about the 160-some victims. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, whatever. No, that's that's the craziest part of the whole thing. Now, whenever you, you point out and they are looking for a homicide in a certain area, if, if there happened to be one that somebody else put there, then they'll want to tie that to you as well. Right. And that's the only, that's why the Cynthia Lynn Rose case was tied to me, because I said I put one behind the Blueberry Hill Cafe in 1992. Mm-hmm. And that's why, they're, that's why they're there now doing this. They're chasing right. me with that. They'd rather just sit back on their laurels and say, well, that's the case. They don't want to have to look now. If they do, if they do find it, and I hope they do, if they find this one here, then, of course, now there's two cases. Are they still going to claim that the Cynthia Rose case is mine as well? Right. I don't, you know, this is this is what, you know, this is how the police departments work. Right. Uh, Even though it's kind of ridiculous because you don't, you know. Well, this is like, it's a, it's an like OD. my sixth murder victim. In my sixth murder victim, they came and talked to me from Florida, and they were more interested in, getting me to confess to a murder that wasn't mine than the one that I did do. And and later in life, what ended up happening, just like a few years later from from, from now, like back in two years ago, uh, Sam Little, that serial killer that came forward, would, would end up claiming that one that they're trying to get me to claim. Right. And I had argued with them. I said, well, back in 1996 when I was talking to Florida, and they were like, uh why would I claim something I didn't do? And they said, well, you know, you'll be solving this case. You're helping the family get closure. And I said, no, they're not getting closure. They're just someone more to hate me more. They're just lining up to hate me for something I didn't do. Now, what oh, happens right. if somebody else actually did the murder and actually comes forth and proves it? Then you have egg on face. And 
I come off as a liar for, for claiming it because you wanted me to claim it. And then they, they have to hate somebody else, right? So I told them I wouldn't do it. But anyway, we're getting far afield here. Uh, if you want to go, we'll, let's move forward with my number four murder. Right. And I All also right. want to talk about um, the fact that what I did for a living and different things like that. I wasn't always a killer. I was always a family man at the same time. I looked after my kids. We, we celebrated holidays. And I had a life. I didn't just, you know, bounce along and just kill here, kill, kill, kill. And and that's all my life was about murder. It wasn't. So, anyway, right. let's just move along here. That's what we try uh, to focus so on, that, actually, is that people, prior to, you know, getting busted for being, like, a serial killer, um, and this is something that you and I talked about yesterday, is a lot of people want to put serial killers and other criminals into this category where, like, they're, they're drooling monsters, and they're hiding, just yeah. lurking around. Grr. And it's like, no, man, these are normal freaking people that do normal everyday yeah. Like, Like, okay, Keith and I were talking yesterday. He was on a bowling team. We talked about bowling. Dude, I was on a bowling team. Yeah, it's normal shit. Yeah, that and he went that, to cribbage tournaments and, you know, all that other jazz. So. Right. It was, it was a yeah, normal I, thing. I, I was in, in 1991, I, I, I joined cribbage. The ACC, which is American Cribbage Congress, and they have tournaments all over the country. And my very first tournament, I was in Baker, Oregon, in uh, the second weekend of March of 1990. And I took third place overall out of 400 people, right? Mm -hmm. I made about 400 bucks. I got a trophy. um, And in Cribbage World Magazine, which was published out of Roseburg, Oregon at the time, they listed me in the next following month. So in April, they had me listed as as the third place winner in, in the in, in that tournament. Well, later that year, I took third place in Nyssa, Oregon. I took uh, first place in Bend, Oregon, and I was in third again in in Portland, Oregon. In different tournaments I went to. It had gotten to a point where the masters, the cribbage masters, were uh, calling on me to be on their teams on team play. Hmm. So I, apparently I had the game. I know the game, you know. And I've been playing cribbage all my, you know, since I was four years old. And uh, I used to play for my allowance, and I made money on my allowance playing cribbage. Okay. So that was kind of like it just like moved right into that. And I still play cribbage from time to time in here. But I also was a square dancer of oh, all yeah. silly things. I, I, my, my wife and I, we joined square dance, and we went, you know, we did the. The promenade and all this we weren't the greatest you know but we went out and we we could went on these uh, little fun little things went in there and we went different groups and, and it was it was just fun to be with she dressed apart i had my western shirts on and and she had this you know this fluffy little gown and and when i when i'd spin her off she'd be like like a little top just spinning around circles. <laughs> it was kind of comical because i'm a big guy you know and, and we had fun, that kind of thing. And of course, like you said, I bowled. I bowled a, a league that was right next to my mother in Rosa Lanes and Yakima. They kicked me. They were going to kick me out of Rosa because I threw a hard plastic ball and I was breaking backboards and and, and pins. They told me one day, said, "Next time uh, you break a pin or a backboard, we're we're not going to let you bowl here anymore." So I had to change from a plastic ball to a rubber ball and a fingertip grip. And I went from about a 170 average to a 205 average with a fingertip ball, which was, and I slowed down my, my projectile. 
and I actually ended up bowling very well. Now, I, I also bowled at Skookum Lanes there off of some of you in Yakima, and my, my partner was, uh, uh, was the owner's wife, uh, and she was a great girl, just a great woman, and uh, his, her husband was named Keith, too, so I kind of laughed every time I tell her. I said, well, I tell Arliss, I said, well, you know, we could go gallivant off her, and, and I could have fun with you, and when you dreamed about me, you wouldn't be giving me up because your, your your husband's name is Keith too. <laughs> <laughs> but Lena. we never did. We never went out and gallivanted like that. But we had fun like that. Mm-hmm. And it was the uh, we we I bowled the Sunday night swingers there in Skookum Lanes, and we had a good time. You know, it was always uh, always took the score and everything. And that was by now. Now let's move on here. So, so in, in, in my number fourth murder was. Uh, a murder that happened in Wilsonville, Oregon, and and like no, it was on November eighth of nineteen ninety two. Now I picked up a load of Harris Ranch meat. I don't know if you know where Harris Ranch meats are. That's down in Selma, California. Yep, I know exactly where those are. Where that is, yeah. Okay, so I went down and I picked up a load of Harris Ranch meat. I had a I had a double drop. I had a half the load came off of United Grocers in Medford, Oregon. And the following morning, I would go to Wehrmart in Salem, which is actually now the, the Department of Corrections warehouse, oh. <laughs> which, yeah, it, it was only a mile away from here. But the, uh, I had two drops, and so I made my first drop in, in, in Medford, and I was headed, that was on the morning of the 8th. And as I drove north, I had to drive all the way up, and it's not that far from Medford up to Salem. And as I was driving, I was thinking, you know, I, I've, I've had the, I've, I've used the services of this one woman in, in Wilsonville as a, as she's a hooker, and her name is Laura Ann Pentland. That's why I know now is what her name is. So I headed up north, and I was thinking, my God, you know, I think I'm going to drive past Salem, go up to Wilsonville, park in Wilsonville at Burns Brothers, and wait around for her to go, you know, to come into the truck stop and... As soon as I hear her on the radio, I'd call her over and we'd take care of business, right? So I headed up north. I got up there and uh, uh, I parked on the second row back. And uh, you're, they no longer have Burns Brothers truck stop there. I, I gather it's gone. And JB's Lounge is probably still go, it's gone as well. But that's exit 286 off of Interstate 5. So I was back in the rough park, and I get—I heard her name. I heard her voice over the radio, and I called her, and and I walked up to where she was, and she got, uh, she walked over with me to the truck, got in, she recognized that I was a regular customer. So she was okay with the, she was okay with the idea that I was, I was with her, and uh, it was miserable outside. It was, let me just set the stage here. It was raining terribly. It was, uh, she was in a raincoat. She had all these, all, uh, she's all dressed up to keep the, the rain off. And she came in and, uh, she took off her raincoat. We settled into the bed to conduct business. I paid her the $40 she asked for. And we engaged in sex. And for a good hour or more, we acted like we were lovers. Now, Laura wasn't a real pretty girl, but all the, all of her plumbing work, was all functional and we got along fine and and that was okay that's just the way it was and after we got done we laid there for a while and she was starting to get dressed 
and there was like a pillow talk. Like she complained openly about not wanting to continue on in her lifestyle. She didn't like what it was going, how she so she was making her living, and she kind of wanted to get out of the situation. And um, she, she, I, I got the feeling that you know, I was feeling sorry for her in a little way, and at the same time, I thought, well, you know, maybe I could, I could solve her problem. I could get just kill her and get her, so she wouldn't have to deal with this anymore. And that's how I thought about it. Um, now. There's a, when dealing with this this case in, in court, I had uh, told the uh, I told them the lie that you know the blame the victim lie. I said that uh, she had uh, tried to double dip me on on charges, which really wasn't true. I was just uh, I was just looking down at her and I told her I could strangle her to end her suffering. And she looked up at me and she said, "Well." It was kind of comical in a way. She looked up at me and she said, go for it. It's like, she didn't think I was serious. I don't think she did. Uh, but I was serious. I thought, you know, why not? I could just, you know, put her out of her misery and she wouldn't have to do this anymore. And so I did. I put her in and, and she died within, you know, about four minutes. She was dead. And uh, now she looked up at me all the time while I was doing this and, and she didn't, she didn't struggle or anything. I think she probably thought that I was just kidding, and but I wasn't, and of course she died. And uh, then I had to think to myself, now what the hell am I going to do now? Where am I going to put her? So I went through her, her pockets and I took all the money that she had in her pocket, she had about $240 on her. Now I drove back to Salem, and I was thinking that as I was driving back to Salem to make my delivery. I. I Come up with a I'd come up with a solution of where to put her. I really didn't know. I could have probably just left her in a parking lot there. The Burns brother could have walked to the back. You know, Snyder Corporation they parked all their empty trailers against the back fence. I thought about going back there and opening up one of their trailers and throwing her body in one of the trailers and shutting the door and just leaving, and let another driver deal with it. Right? But no, nah, no, I wasn't going to do that. In truck stops, you just never know who's looking because. I know through experience that I have a pair of binoculars, and I always, when I sat in a, in a truck stop, I would check around what's going on around me. I always want to know, you see people walking and, and coming and going, and I watch, and I've seen people steal things from other drivers, and and uh, I've gotten involved, and, and then I learned later not to get involved. <laughs> you know, uh, it just gets you more involved in, 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 in that kind of bullshit. You want to get away from it. But I got to watch and things. So in a truck stop, I don't want to leave anything in the truck stop because you never know who's watching. So I left when we drove back down to towards Salem. Now, I was going to Walmart. Now, when I had, I came up on, on uh, I think it was on Hawthorne Avenue, and I had to turn down this alleyway-type driveway, and it goes past the G.I. Joe's store. And I remember parking in behind the GI just now. I pulled in the back lot. Now you can't get in there anymore because they have a gate there because of this murder. But at the time, I drove in the back there and and on the very back of the lot. And it's, it's it's not lit up at all. There's no lighting, and there's a six foot high chain link fence that goes around the perimeter of the of the area. And I parked parallel to the fence. I got out and I was walking around looking. I was making sure no one was watching. 
and there, in one corner of the of the parking lot was a bunch of uh, container trailers and dollies that another driver had left there. And there's a bunch of blackberry entrails laying over the fence. And I looked at there, and I figured there's a good old pocket there I could throw a body in. And then there was like four or five piles of leaves against the fence that they'd raked up in, uh, from the trees. Now, on the other side of the fence from the parking lot was a was just a wooded area at the time. There's probably apartments in there now. I, I'm not sure. I, I haven't been there in 30-something years. But there's there was like uh, you know, just a wooded area. So I wasn't worried about what was on the other side. I pulled her body on a later up against the fence and underneath those entrails. And I picked up all these piles of leaves and I was throwing the leaves onto the body to cover her up. Now, one other thing, and I took an inventory of what, what I had on me at the time before I left, and I lost my, there's a, I had a flashlight, a little white plastic flashlight that had my fingerprints all over it. I lost it. I didn't know where the hell I had this thing. So I looked for the flashlight, and then I ended up uncovering the body, and the flashlight had fallen underneath the body. So I had to roll the body up, and I, there was my flashlight, pulled it up, stuck it back in my pocket, rolled it back down, and covered her back up with leaves. Then I drove out of the parking lot and drove about 100 yards um, to the Wehrmacht parking lot and waited there until morning to get unloaded. Then I went and got unloaded, and of course, uh, it was uh, uh, daylight when I drove past the G.I. Joe's. I looked over, and there was still a pile of leaves with her body underneath it, so I knew it was intact, and I left. Now, it was kind of a, it was really a, a, a strange strange type case because uh, two weeks later I drove to the Burnt Brothers truck stop there in Wilsonville and I parked. I went inside and they had pictures of Laura and Pentland about every five to six feet posted on the walls of the building. And I looked at them. Now, everywhere I looked was a picture of her looking back at me. Wow. And I wanted, to, I wanted to take one of those pictures home. I, really, I, I thought, man, I was I went and I grabbed one of those, but I kept thinking that there's cameras on me watching the picture. And I, I was fearful that someone would see me take a picture, and then they would ask me, why did I take that picture? And I, I didn't want to be caught up in that, so I, I left it all there. But it was, it, was, it was crazy because they were looking, have you seen this girl? And there was this picture of her there, and, and I was like, I, I was enticed to grab one, but I, I just couldn't. I couldn't reach up and do it without being seen by anyone, so I didn't do it. Now, we settled this case. This was one of the cases I turned into the happy face letter that I sent off in 1994. And so they knew it was mine. And so when I was arrested in 1995, they wanted to settle this case as quickly as possible. As it turned out, on November 8th, three years to the day after I killed her, I was in Marion County and we we're settling this case to finalize a life sentence in writing to, to make this case go away. Now I was doing a, they did a video uh, interview with me and I was kind of joking along with this because I was just was settling this thing. I was just like a normal do talking and, 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 and trying to get this thing all settled up. I told them, I said, well, this happened, you know, the murder happened in Wilsonville, which is actually Washington County, and that they will probably want to get involved in this case. And, of course, Marion County said where, was the case where the body was found. 
And they said, no, no, we did all the investigation on this. We did all this. We made the deal. This is where it's going to settle. In a couple of weeks, you'll be on our court, and it'll be done. Well, a couple of weeks goes by, and nothing happens. Well, all of a sudden, I, I get wind that Marion, uh, Marion County actually, when we, they, they brought up the idea that I had murdered in Wilson in Washington County, Washington County stepped in and said, this is our case now. We want this. But in order to get that case, they had to accept the deal that Marion County had made with me to get the evidence in the case. And also in doing so, Washington County had to pay for the whole investigation that Marion County had done. So all the monies that they spent on overtime or whatever else in, in their, their investigations to the detectives and setting up the deal had to be paid back to Marion County from Washington County in order for them to get me in front of a judge to say I did it. And then on December 15th in 1995, I was in Washington County Court to get 37 and a half years to follow the Bennett murder. And while I was there, of course, uh, Lauren Pentland's pimp was there to yell at me for killing her. And that's it. And I remember seeing her before at the truck stop. So that's the basis of the whole case there. Uh, like I said, the I played the blame game, uh, blaming the victim, claimed that uh, she had charged me double, and that's why I killed her, which really isn't true. And the only reason I had, I claimed that was because my lawyer wants me to uh, throw the victim, you know, throw the victim under the bus, kind of thing. And that's a courtroom type drama type situation that is commonly used. Yes. So there. Wow. Is that. Wow. <laughs> no, it's like, I mean, because when you like sit back and you think about it, like the way it really happened is like, wow. You know, because. I mean, because I, I came to the epiphany after our last call that. Um, you know, because we've been asked, you know, what made you decide to murder somebody once you picked them up? Because you didn't murder every girl you picked up or were with, obviously. Right. You kind of been our no. hot. You're, you've been our hot topic in in discussion because uh, we do a, a group chat where they message back and forth. So you've been kind of a hot topic on that one there. Yeah. So, and that and that's what everybody's been. Uh, it's it's a consistent question. It's always, what made Keith yeah. choose his like? How, how did he choose his victim pool? And uh, I'm going to well, let you. The, the real that. issue here is that the real issue that really plays into this is the fact that I I I murdered Bennett, then I murdered the other one down there in Riverside County, then I murdered and, and it, as I moved along, murder became less and less important in my life. It mm. became I didn't have anyone I had to you know I, I wasn't uh, being run by somebody. I didn't have to. I didn't have to own up to anything I was doing. Right. And murder just became a nonchalant, no big deal type of thing. Right. But I. So, I mean, my epiphany was that um, when it boiled down to it, because you know, because I believe Tanya Bennett. I don't even look at her as part of this victim pool. I think she was. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, she was kind of accidental. Yeah, so, I exactly. Mean, it's like it wasn't the whole thing. But I believe that in my, from what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing you say is that at a certain point in your life, you got to a point is like you wanted companionship, 
but you were looking for it in the wrong places. And when these women didn't want to be companions, they just wanted to be paid. That, you know, kind of triggered something in you. And it was like, you know what? I just want to be done with this now. You know? Well, it, it, it's kind of along those lines, I guess. I mean, uh, I'm not a head shrink, but right. know, and, and to, di- to diagnose myself is probably get it wrong in the first place. Right. I'm, I'm out here. Yes, I, I love the companionship of a woman. Don't get me wrong. I had I was dating girls at the same time I killed these girls. Right. Exactly. And so I like like I had a girlfriend in uh, in Portland, uh, Sayana Webster. She's like four foot eleven, five foot tall, maybe ninety five pounds, soaking wet. She looked like a little chipmunk, tiny little girly little face, and, and she had the Carrie shrugs. Uh, you know, body of a gymnast, which had no hips and hardly <laughs> anything there. But she was a great girl to be with, right? That's, right. She's a little Western dancer, but but she's also a brat, and she also played around on me. So that's kind of how that ended. But I never killed her, right? You know, I just never did. Now, in, in 1990, I was dating uh, a, a woman there named Betsy Pennington, and her and I were an item. And she had two great kids, uh, Sarah and Kate, and I took him trick or treating and with my son, and we enjoyed a great time. And then, of course, they went on their way to Helena, Montana. That's where they moved to, and I wasn't in Helena anymore. I was. I went there a couple times, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't follow through and live there with them. So that ended. Right. I had a woman named Karen Ruiz, which I dated out of Fallon, Nevada, and she moved into Reno area, and I dated with her for several for several times and I at the same time I dated her I dated another woman that worked as, as a keno runner at the Western Village Casino there in, in Reno right we talked about her and, too once I think so I have I've had girls everywhere that were that were I was searching for a specific one to be with right and I gave them a chance as a matter of fact I would give them a chance to be my you know, to own up to who they really were, right. and when there's when they the spot when their spots came out, I, I realized I was barking up the wrong tree. Let's just say, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, so in 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 1992 was kind of like a defining moment for me to be a murderer because one minute remaining, and I will call you right back. All, All right. right, talk to you in a minute. Yeah. Hey, you welcome begin back. Speaking oh. now. You need to wait until it tells you <laughs> to speak. Right. Welcome God. back, Keith. All right, so so you're a truck driver, so you know kind of like what I, I was going through, uh, hauling here, there, and everywhere. Now, right. in the trucking company I was with, now um, when when my wife left me, I was working for Ray Hair Trucking out of Yakima, and they drive these. Peterbilt cab over hauling reefer trailers up and down I-5, as well as they had 40-foot 40, 40 trailers, uh, flatbeds, 40s and 20s and different things. And I drove for them for a while, then on October 11th of 1998, 1988, I should say, I, uh, I was bobtail up by Kirkland, and I flipped the truck end-to-end down the medium three times overhead and wrecked the truck. And then four days later, I was driving for A&G Trucking out of Yakima, which I was hauling basically the same thing of produce on, on reefer trailers, only now I was driving instead of a, a cab over, I was now driving conventional Peterbilt. And 
I was in every company I worked for. I, I developed a reputation as being the go-to guy when things go bad out on the road. Okay. Uh, in other words, if, if another driver had engine trouble and was parked on the side of the road, when I called in, they'd say, I need you to run over to so-and-so and, 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 and see if you can get the truck running so that we don't have to pay you know, for a service call out on the side of the road. Or if, I, if, if the guy couldn't get his load delivered, would I deliver his load for him and he could take my loaded trailer and go north or whatever. It seemed like every time I turned around, I had these, these little issues that, I, that had to be attended. I was the guy that they always called on to fix things out on the road. And so my nickname from A&G Trucking was Man of Action. That was my nickname, the Man of Action. And when I heard that name, when I got on the phone, they say, where's my man action? I said, what problem do you have now? <laughs> right? I know that and, all too well, yes. too. And so they'd send me off to wherever to deal with it. Now, in, and they'd always tell me, I owe you one, right? This is the boss for you. He'd say, uh, you do this for me, I'll owe you one. Well, when is he going to pay me back all these I owe yous, right? Right. So... In Christmas of 1992, uh, I just I had loaded a load out of I went down to the produce market off Alameda down in L.A. unloaded. I went over to Yuma and I picked up a load of produce and I was headed north. I called in and he said, "Oh, by the way, I need you to run up to the uh, Wheeler Ridge to drop your trailer so Jeremy can take it north, and you need to grab his trailer and run it back down there to the produce market because he didn't make his delivery on time." And so now I have to fix Jeremy's load. So I go down and I pick up Jeremy's load, take it down down to Alameda again, unload that, roll over to Yuma and pick up another load. I'm heading north. Now, when I'm in Yuma, I'm already a day like, it's Christmas Eve coming up, right? This right. is coming up and I needed, my kids are in Spokane, Washington, and they're waiting for dad to show up there. But my boss has now pushed me a couple days back to where all of a sudden now it's going to be Christmas Eve by the time I get to Yakima to pick up my, my car to drive up there. And I hadn't had time to go get my Christmas present from my kids. So I figured I'd, I'd call in on, on this I owe you shit, right? Yeah. So I call in the boss and I talk to the boss's son. I said, hey, man, I need you to go to Shopco in Yakima. Go to Shopco, pick me up the trampoline that's there. And bring it back, put it in my car, so I have I can go up there now. My so his son tells me to go fuck off, Ooh. right? He literally just tells me that uh, I don't. He's not doing anything for me, and all this that that I have nothing coming, and all this. And I'm like, really? And I hang up the phone, right? So I'm all pissed off. So I wait a couple minutes, and I call back to the office, and I ask to talk to Anthony, which is the boss, the big boss. So Anthony gets on the phone, and I don't let him say a word. I just start yelling at him. I said, "All these IOUs, you're gonna, you're gonna." I asked your fucking son one goddamn thing, and he tells me to go fuck off. I'm gonna drop this goddamn load off at your place, and I'm gonna get get in my car, and you're never gonna see me again. So much for all the all the good things I've done for you. Is go screw yourself, go fuck off, and all that kind of shit. Anyway, I just hang up the phone. Now. I go down and make my, you know, I've made my delivery down there, and I picked up at Yuma, and I'm headed north, and the next following morning, I call in, 
and Anthony's on the phone. He said, Keith, man, I'm really sorry all this up. The, the, the trampoline's in, in the back shed. It's got a, a dolly there waiting for you. Let's put this all behind us. We're, you're doing us a great job, blah, 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 right? Right. <laughs> so it gets done, and I head north. Now, I make the delivery in Associate Grocers, and I come back over to Yakima, and it's Christmas Eve. I get there, and all the checks are supposed to be in this fuel uh, the fuel office. Well, they're not there. And this is this is the time when we don't have cell phones. Right. There's no cell phones. There's a pay phone down at a store about a mile away. There's no there's no phone there on the yard. So I so all the drivers are sitting there waiting for their paychecks, and no one's showing up to give them a paycheck. So I go down to the pay phone, I call, and sure enough, I get all the bosses done. He has to come out and gives us our our checks, right? And then he's apologizing hell. Now one of the drivers had blew a tire trying to get out of the snowbank. And he was going to go to Wenatchee. Well, I went to help him fix his tire, and his tire is flat, and his spare is flat. So now it's you know it's Christmas Eve. And he has to get home to his wife and kids in in Wenatchee. So I tell him, well, all right, put your stuff in my car. I'm going that way anyway. And I drop him off in Wenatchee, and everything's fine. And I and by six o'clock or so the next morning, I'm in parked in front of my kid's house in Spokane, and I see him. They look out the window, and I I. I go up there and I see my kids happy you know Merry Christmas all this stuff Christmas morning and I said I got your present out in the car and I'll just go get it and I went out there and got the dolly and I said I got one present for all three of you and I bring out there and here's this this box weighs 200 and some pounds it, it, it's all metal it's it's a big it's a trampoline what the hell I, I get it to the back backyard I spend the hour two hours putting it together the kids are all bouncing on this son of a gun. I go inside and I go to sleep in their bedroom. When I wake up several hours later, all three kids are sleeping with me. <laughs> and that was what I remember in 1992. Now, right after that, of course, I took all the kids and I drove down to the uh, truck stop off of Broadway in Spokane, and we'd have the turkey dinner and all that kind of thing, and and, and we caught up. Right. And that was my my life with my kids. This is my life with my kids was a trampoline and everything and they were all excited but I could never get the excitement now my wife my ex-wife was was married at the time and of course she was like upset that I wouldn't take her with me <laughs> it was she, she's married to the guy I mean she, she she made her bed she left me for him what the hell but uh, now the trucking company A&G trucking company had a problem they were uh, they were going under and they, they 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 went under several times while I was working for them, and every time they went under, they changed their name. So Angie Trucking went to Pacific North, the company Pacific North, and that happened in 1993, around January, early January, uh, February, right in there. Well, they had a couple weeks off that I had to have a couple weeks. Now this is really crazy. This this I got uh, when I called in my. One of the dispatchers asked me if I would take, would fly down to Yuma, Arizona, and pick up a truck down there that a guy was sick. There's a guy that was sick, and he wasn't working for a company. He worked for Gene Trip Trucking out of Yakima. Apparently, this guy was sick. He couldn't drive the truck, and he needed to get the product back north. And would I fly down there? Would they're looking for a driver to fly down there and drive him back? So, I, I agreed I would, and so they flew me from Yakima to, to Portland from Portland to Sacramento, from Sacramento to Pediax, 
and then he put me on a prop plane over to Yuma. And my dad was a snowbird at the time in Yuma, so he picked me up at the airport. He drove me up to the Texaco truck stop there in Yuma, and uh, it, we had a little conversation. Went over and I knocked on the driver's door of this. It's a beautiful Peterbilt 379 series. It had the uh, 48-foot reefer on the back. It was a beautiful unit. I knocked on the door. The guy comes to the door, and I know him, right? I know the driver. And as I looked right at him, I said, are you sick? And he says, well, not really. I said, then why am I here? And he said, well, um, uh, I got a problem. I said, apparently you do. But what's your problem? He said he was 6,000 pounds overweight. He had loaded the trailer overweight, and he was afraid to leave the truck stop with an overweighted trailer to head north, and he figured that he'd call in sick to his boss, and his boss had sent another driver that would take responsibility for the overloaded trailer. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and so I looked on his bill of lading, and I looked at his, it was a letter, it was a letter, the last part was lettuce, and I know the I know the form that runs the place, and it was like 10 o'clock at night, so I knew they were open, so I drove over to the uh, produce shed. I went over to the farm and I said, all right, I, I, I just flew in to, to drive this damn truck back. It's got 6,000 pounds extra of lettuce on the back. Will you take it off? And he said, yeah, I'll take it off, but I'm not gonna credit you because this has been on his load for three days. He wasn't gonna credit him anything. I said, well, okay, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll just run with it, what the hell. If I get up to a scale house and I have to pull across the scale, I'll just throw the 6,000 pounds of lettuce on the side of the road and cross the scale. That's what I'll have to do. So I headed north, and I went up, uh, and I'd have to go across no scale. So I, I went up Highway 95 to Needles, crossed on over, uh, and kept on going north on 95, and went through Lake Havasaw and, cro- and got up to uh, uh, Boulder, and went through Vegas, and took 95 all the way up to Reno and fueled up in Reno and went took the 395 to Alturas, California. And then from there, went up to Lake Lakeview, which is then 31 over to Lapine and straight up 97 up. And, and of course, the bend scale was closed. Uh, there was no, the scale of Madras was closed. And uh, I got up to Big Junction and Goldendale was open. So I had to go horse heavens. I had to go 14 east of Horse Heavens and cross over into Prosser, and that skill was closed, and I went into Yakima, and I made my delivery. I made, did all of this in a matter of just, you know, a few days, and in doing that, Gene Tripp comes out, and he hands me $200. All of that for $200, right? That's trucking, right? Wow. All of that, get him up now. He says that at that time, so I should have just had you take it into, into Associate Grocery Seattle, I said, well, if you told me that, I, I wouldn't have had to cross the scale either. I would have just gone. It would be yeah. there, right? But I only got like that. But he asked me, he said, well, uh, what's in, what was the problem? I said, it's 6,000 pounds overweight. It's not, he's not sick. The driver's not sick. He's, he's driving. He, he loaded it. He knew he overloaded it. And then he got upset because he, he had overloaded it. He didn't know he could take it back and take the product off. And of course, Gene offered me a job of of, of of leasing that same truck. He was going to get rid of the guy. He said, "Well, I'll let you drive that truck. I don't want your job. Two hundred dollars to drive back all the way from there? No, I'm not going to take that. I should have got a thousand dollars anyway. 
for going down there and coming back. Yeah. But anyway, that's trucking. That's trucking. <laughs> so this, and I, I tell this, I'm leading up to, uh, up to my fifth murder, right? Right. Because this is coming up to it. So this is 1993 now. Now I'm headed, now my company, I was going to buy a truck from AG Trucking or Pacific North or whatever. And when I had, I was buying one, and then of course when they 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 turned names and went to Pacific North, they had to sell a truck to pay bills. And what did they sell? They sell the one I was buying. Oh, okay. So now I had to get. Now there's another guy there, Lloyd McGinnity. Lloyd had another truck just like the one I was buying. Only now he's the owner, and now he's turned around. He's going to sell me a truck, but that was still in the works. Okay. So in the meantime, I had to drive a company truck, which I did. And this is, I was driving a company truck in May of 1993. And they had me run all the way down to Salinas, California, to pick up a load of produce for associate grocers. And I was empty. I was empty headed down south, and I had to get down there by a certain time and come back. And in, in May of, of, of 1993 in Northern California, the rains were horrible probably okay. like they are now you know right now they're, they're 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 really bad there in california but they're like that back then and all the street people everybody that that didn't have a house was trying to find a place to get dry yeah they were just coming in out of nowhere and getting dry and this is what so when i pulled into corning california uh i pulled in behind the petro truck stop i don't know if you've been there scott uh, he had to get up but for a second but have you been to the petro's truck stop in Corning, California? He said, of course. <laughs> of course. All right. So I parked, I was in, I was parked on the south entrance of it within a couple parking spots of the south exit door of the, of the building. And they have a restaurant in there called Iron Skillet. And when I walked in, all, everyone, there's a lot of people standing around looking for a place to sit down and they're just staying out of the rain. And I come in there, I looked at the booth, I looked at uh, the restaurant, and I was looking for a place to sit down, and I saw, I spotted a booth where people were just getting up, and they were leaving to pay their bill, and I ran over, and I jumped in it. There's a booth there that would seat about four of us drivers. And as I sat down, I was joined by three other drivers I didn't know. I didn't know them at all. And uh, we were sitting there, we were kind of like getting acquainted, asked who's who and that, and when I, when I get into a, a, a building or, or, like I say, a parking lot or whatever, I always look around. I always to see who the hell I'm looking for. I'm not looking for anything specific. I'm just looking to look. Right. And I spotted a problem. They had a problem there. And there's this woman sitting on a bar stool at, at the table, I mean, at, at the bar. And she was just sitting there. She didn't have anything in front of her. She didn't have anything to drink. She was just sitting there. Uh, looking bewildered, and she was staring at all the meals walking by. You could see where her eyes were falling, her face and that. And there were people that were looking at her. And she was wet, soaking wet. Her hair was just, you know, everything was just matted down. And people were pointing at her and telling the waitresses to remove her. She, she doesn't look, she's not, she doesn't belong here, like a thing. She was unkept. You know she was from the street. Um, she, you know, she wasn't a normal person, in other words. Well, anyway, the waitress came over to take our order. They were cleaning off our table and everything. 
And I said to myself, I said, well, I'm going to help this woman out, right? Mm-hmm. So the waitress, I started asking everybody what they wanted for their meal, and they had the menu and that. And these other three drivers were, they, they all ordered for themselves. And I said to the waitress, I said, well, I pointed the woman out. I said, you, you look at it, you see that woman over there? And she says, and you could just tell by the waitress that she didn't want to hear it. Right. And I said to her, so I tell you what, I want you to go over there and tell her to order anything off the menu, and I'll pay for it, right? Okay. Just, just, just let, her, let her get what she wants to eat and, and so that she has something in front of her, and I'll pay for this. And I don't care what it is, and she could order the whole damn menu. I don't give a shit, but it, it would create great service. And I told the other drivers, and they were looking at me like I was nuts. Why the hell will you do that? And I was like, you just wait, and we're going to get the best service in the place. Why? Because we're doing them a service. We're giving, we're solving their problem. Because now she's she's eating a meal, and nobody can say get the fuck out, right? Right. So the she goes over the waitress goes. Now I told her that. Now don't tell her who's paying for it. I don't want her coming running over here and be my lost puppy, right? Right. I don't want her to be like, but I want her to have a meal, and everything's okay. And it's just. Now, this is kind of a setup here. This is just like an experiment, right? Mm-hmm. And so the waitress goes over and tells her, and she orders a soup and a sandwich. That's what she orders. She doesn't order a steak or anything like that. She just, but she is stoking around. She's looking for a sugar daddy, but I'm so far away, she couldn't figure it out who I was anyway. And, but every waitress that was in the place came over to our table making sure our coffee was up, making sure everything's okay. You're such a nice guy for doing this. I mean, this is just, this is nuts. Right. You know, this is how you get service, man. You do them a favor and they come over and they want you to thank you. Now, they would love to have given her a meal, but they can't do that. If they do that, every homeless person in the damn country would come in there expecting a meal. Right. So they couldn't do that. But... So, anyways, where I sat there, and I, I had my meal, and, and the, other, the other three drivers, they learned a lesson on how to get good service. And we, I, we got up, and we eventually got up, and we left. And I looked over, and she got up, and I went over and I paid for the meal. And I could see other drivers checking her out. I mean, she was kind of wandering through the building. She went to the restroom, came back out. And uh, I could see other drivers checking out, and I could see other drivers checking out to see who was checking her out. This is this is just people watching people, right? Yeah. And then she went over and she stood by the back door and stared outside into the rain, all the rain coming down. And I stood beside her. I walked over and stood right beside her. And then I, I could have just said nothing. I could have just left, but I didn't. I said... And I said to her, I said, you could have had more. I said, you could have ordered more than a soup and a sandwich. And I would have paid for it. No big deal. And we, and I know she was, she's a street person. She knows there's a hustle going on here somehow. So she just kind of stepped kind of, kind of quiet. She didn't say anything. And then uh, and then I kind of baited her. I, I was kind of interested. Cause I looked her over. I thought she wasn't that bad looking. And I thought, well, maybe I'll help her a little more. And I said, well, then I, I bait her. I said, I told her I was heading south to Salinas, had to be there in the morning. And then I just left it at that. And then she spoke. She said, I have a sister in Sacramento. Sure would like to be, you know, see her again, kind of a, a thing there. And I said, well, I'm heading by Sacramento. 
and I pointed to my semi in, in, in the parking lot, and I told her I had to catch up on my logbook, then I'm leaving, right? And I opened the door, and I just walked to my truck. I didn't say anything else. I sat under, I sat under my dome light and looked over at her looking at me. And when I turned on my headlights and put it in gear like I was going to leave, she ran to my truck and got in. Now, uh, she had other stuff that were sitting there at the trucks in, in, in the area, and she questioned whether she was going to go get it or not. She didn't know. Well, I was, oh, I'll just leave it there, she said. So we pulled out on the I-5 south, and uh, we headed south. And as we drove south, she talked up a storm. She was, I couldn't get her to shut up. <laughs> she was like, you know, she was like a, a little little bird that w was free now. She was in, she's in a dry truck. She was drying out. She was, you know, I noticed you know, she looked okay. She, her hair was dry now and everything was all fluffy. And, and she talked. And she just, but she talked about staying with me instead of going to Sacramento. She thought that all of a sudden now that I could, you know, that we could be a team kind of a thing. And and she said to me, and she just openly said, I just don't want to get pregnant, no. is what she said. I was like, what? No. That's just straight up, straight out told me, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, I don't want to get pregnant either, right? Right. So we pulled into the, we pulled into the Williams Rest area on I-5. Uh, and my whole purpose was to pull in the rest here. I was going to look on the map for Sacramento where I was going to drop her off. <laughs> and I sat down. I sat down and I went in the where the truck was didn't have a big sleeper. It was like a 48 inch sleeper. It wasn't much of a bed. But I was just sitting on there underneath this dome light with the map of Sacramento. I had a Randall McNally big map that you could open up to all the different roads on the different big towns, cities. And I'm sitting there with this, and she's starting to take her clothes off. And I'm like, "What? I mean, what? I mean, yeah, let's just get let's get friendly, kind of a thing." And she said, "I really don't want to be in Sacramento." And she mentioned that the last time she was with her sisters, that she stole from her, and she didn't whether really know whether or not to be with her sister after she was last time she was with her, she had stole from her sister. And I'm not even sure she had a sister in Sacramento. Okay. But she was just wanting to get out of the rain. And so, yeah, okay, so the clothes came off. We laid back, and we did enjoy uh, sexual, you know, things. Yes. We did everything. And after, you know, and, and I did not get her pregnant. I made damn sure that there was no release in her. So we weren't going to get her pregnant. And we got dressed, and I uh, I just looked at her, and I, I was thinking about what she told me about her sister stealing from her I thought you know I don't want her with me and I don't want to go through this so I just decided I would kill her at that time it was just a nonchalant I, this thing's over I'm not gonna I'm not gonna push it any further than what it is and so I just did I just killed her at that time okay. and I was uh, and after I killed her I was like well now what do I do so I drove I drove south on I-5 and I got to highway 152 I headed towards Gilroy, and I, I climbed up to the top summit, and I went down about a mile down the other side of the summit, and there's a wide turn there, and there's a wide parking area I could pull into. I got out, and I searched the area for a good place to put her, and so I, I found a pile of boulders about 100 yards off, to the, off the highway, and I went back to the truck, and I threw over my shoulder, and I, I 
walked her out to the boulders, and I threw her in behind the boulders. Now, one of the things that happened, I had a, a flashlight. Here I am with a flashlight again. I had a black and yellow rubberized flashlight that when you turn it on, you hit the little button on the very end of the flashlight, popped in and out. And it had a little tether, and I had it on my wrist. I wa- as I walked over, and when I threw her body down in behind the boulders, uh, the flashlight flew off my wrist. So I couldn't find the flashlight. Didn't know where it was, but there it was, right? And that was the one piece of evidence that would prove that I did this murder, was the fact that I knew that there's a black and white, black and yellow, flat rubberized flashlight that was seven inches long, somewhere around the body, right? Okay. Now, when they discovered the body about two weeks later, another truck driver had, had located it. Uh, the original uh, coroner report was that she died of a drug overdose. And that, and, and when I was dealing with the Bennett murder, trying to claim I was the real murderer, and remember I told you about how uh, there's a couple of these cases where they're claiming that I'd lied to them, that there's no way in hell I did the case. Well, this was one of them where the coroner said, well, no, Jesperson's lying about the Bennett case. He lied about here. This is a drug overdose. This isn't a murder. Everything. And, of course, when I proved I did the, the Bennett case, then this, this coroner fell silent. They just stopped talking then in, and then then in 2006 they they brought in another corner and they did another corners report and now they rule it as a as a murder and not a drug overdose because now they want to prosecute me for murder and since so many years have passed they decided to do this and that and in july of 2007 they brought me in and they uh they gave me a life without for the murder. Now, the only way I could get them to come for me is that I told them that I had sex with her. And then they, one of the judges was thinking that I had sexually assaulted her, but I never assaulted her, that we had had a mutual sexual experience. But because I brought that in, that's, they said that's one of the reasons why they gave me life without. Now, this is, Patricia Skipple was identified in April of 2022 through DNA on the Ancestry.com uh, network. Right. They, they ran her DNA and they found out that her name was Patricia Skipple and that was, that her identity identity was, was, was known in April of 2022. That's a long time after the murder happened in, in 1993. Right. And by the way, we've got two minutes left, and this will be the last call that we can take for today. So we got to continue it next week, just letting you all know. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I'm on but a that's, time that's, schedule today. <laughs> okay, well, that's uh, and, and next week, do you want to do it at 11 o'clock, or do you want to do it at 8 o'clock? 11 o'clock works perfect. Yeah. Okay. All right, we'll, we'll do it at 11 o'clock next week. But, um, <clears throat> what is it? Oh. And I think we got to all the listener questions, didn't we, Scott? For I think now? so. Yeah, for okay. now. Yeah, I was going to say, did we cover them all? Because I, I promised we'd get to them. So. <laughs> all right, Keith. We'll talk to you next week, buddy. Take care. Okay. Have bye. a great bye, day. Bye, Keith. You too. Oh, all right, bye. All right. That was damn good calls, man. There's was a lot of good info. and It was. What I liked is that he focused uh, a lot on the same thing that we've been focusing on, which is... Serial killers, yeah, yeah. Serial killers have a life outside of of killing. Of killing, 
Yeah. You know, and that's that that's by and large across the board, not every time, but I'm going to say probably 95 percent of the time. You know, you, you can look at some of the most horrific killers in the world, like uh, like Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, mm-hmm. pillar of his community. Great guy. And uh, but behind the scenes, he had, you know, sexual fetishes, uh, Factor X, which was a demon that was attached to him, he says, um, and things like that. You know, the, these aren't monsters that are lurking in the dark. These are your neighbors, your friends, your family. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And I mean, and we've talked about it before, like, you know, because you always you and I talked about, it, I think, from the almost from the time we both realized we like serial killers. That it's like you always hear about it. it's not so and so and so and so. It's always like, oh my God, it can't be him. I can't believe it's him. They've got the wrong person, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Nobody's looking at me going, oh, we knew it was Scott. Look at him. He's super outgoing. Makes his, He told so many dick jokes. <laughs> he's in love with Tammy's mom. We knew it. It's never somebody yeah. like me. Ever. Yeah. Ever. It's always like, really? He was so nice and sweet and like mowed my lawn and exactly. my groceries exactly. and shit. Exactly. So. Weird yeah, it's shit, always man. that kind of person. But it's but it's true though. I mean, you know, like I was telling you know, because my best friend like uh, picked me up from the dentist yesterday, took me to go get my meds, and I was talking about what you know that we were going to be talking to Keith today, and everything. And she said, she goes, oh yeah, she goes, how's that going? I said, you know, he's actually a really nice guy. I said, I know it's odd to say about a guy who murdered eight people, but he's actually a nice guy and i agree man i talk to you him know? once or twice a week I, I i get to talk to keith jesperson so yeah exactly it's, so. And, and it's good conversations we don't talk about the murders so much i mean we might touch up on what we're going to do for the episode right but then we talked about like well like yesterday when when him and i were talking um we talked about bowling oh yeah and square dancing and uh and, and things like that you know fam- family yeah. shit you know and i kind of like the fact you in this call that he did kind of be like you know he goes, I'm not going to diagnose myself. I'm not a shrink. I said, well, yeah. I said, but this is what I'm hearing. He's like, you know, you might be right, you know, type of thing, you know. Well, I agree. I and agree. answering our listener phone, I mean, listener questions. I think that's awesome that he's open to that. Mm. Oh, yeah. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap this one up. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Uh, log on to fa- the Facebook Book of the Faces. The Book of the Faces. And check out Citizens of Brutal Nation. Now, we got two different pages going on, but go over to Citizens of Brutal Nation because we actually have active comments going on, chat, uh, things like that. Interact with us. I promise yeah. that we don't bite, and Tammy's had all of her shots, like rabies. Never. She's got the collar to prove it. I hate you. And a V-chip. I just say right now, I just don't have the teeth to bite, but whatever. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> This show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And if you're hearing this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying, thieving bastards. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.